You're listening to the Hub City Church Podcast. To learn more about Hub City Church, including our gathering times, you can check out our website at albanyhubcity.com. Well, good morning. Good to see you guys. Um, week three, Psalm 23. How are we feeling? How are we doing? It's kind of fun, huh, to just slow down and be in one passage, one small passage, but man, the gravity of it. I think we could do, we could just stay in this for a long time. Maybe we should. Should we stay in it the rest of the year? What do you think? Yeah? No? Anybody giving me the, um, no, there's lots of other good stuff, but yeah, like Bryce and, and, and uh, Gabe were saying, and um, it's just, this is the kind of thing that every day you can say all the time, multiple times, because it needs to be written on our hearts, not just known in our mind, you know, and we're shaped by it. Um, yeah, just I want to go back to just verse one. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. You know, we've been looking in the last couple of weeks just like how the Lord is our shepherd. And David has this beautiful language where he's just putting God in, he's not putting himself in the shepherd position, putting God in the position of shepherd, and he's lowering himself, as king of Israel, lowering himself to the sheep. That's the position he wants to see himself in compared to this God. He's been writing, he's been writing about this good shepherd, how this good shepherd leads, leads to provision, leads to the, the still waters. It's not just water, right? It's like the perfect, the water, the calm, the peace. Leads in safety and protection. His sheep can be satisfied because they know they're being cared for. Remember, we looked last week, the sheep, you can't make them lie down, but they lie down when they are fully full and satisfied and protected. In times of discomfort, he brings to comfort, and then in times of comfort, um, then he can also lead into discomfort for our better. Um, he intentionally finds the still parts of the river that is, that is life, that are calm and refreshing to bring peace to the chaos of life. His namesake, we looked at that, he does not betray his reputation, but he is constant and true in his love for his sheep, this good shepherd. And David feels this deeply, and he considers himself one of the cared under the care of the good shepherd. But all of that, all of that has been leading up to the hardest parts of life. Because a lot of that can just sound kind of like fluffy, idyllic language, right? They're like, oh, it makes me lie down. I have no worries, right? What, what could we possibly have to worry about. God is the good shepherd, so nothing bad will ever happen, and there's no fear, there's no worries, and if you do any of that, you're a bad sheep. David knows fear. If you know anything about David's story, it's not even fear in the moment, but it's fear in anticipation, aka anxiety as well. Psalm 139, David pours out his heart and writes this, Psalm 139, 23, Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Any anxious thoughts in here? Not, no, not us. No, no, no. <laughs> the other place. Right? Ancient thought, ancient, ancient. Anxious thoughts are so prevalent in human nature, right? It's just part of being human. At the end of the day, if we allow it, there is much to be anxious about. But think of how profound it is to write for David that sheep, far more helpless than humans, far more prone to anxiousness and worry. 
could even sheep could have such security and trust in the shepherd that even they could lie down fully satisfied. They could even drink by still water, knowing nothing will disturb them. To be restored at their soul level is what David writes about, able to withstand the hardships of life. My uh, eight-year-old daughter really wanted a bunny, and um, we already have a dog and some chickens, and I just felt like, sure, why not? You know, it's a zoo. So I had her do some research because I wanted to see her commitment. So she had to find three bunny owners and give me facts of what it means to raise a bunny and then give 15 facts about what it means. So she went the next day to her school computer and printed out and, and actually wrote down, hand wrote 15 facts. They weren't all facts. Like some of them were like, bunnies are cute. And it's like, that's not a fact, but it's cool. I get it. Um, so anyway, so we, long story short, we get a bunny. And we have this like six and a half week old bunny eater. It's so cute. His name is Patches. He has no patches on him. She picked the name before the bunny. But um, <laughs> Patches, uh, we bring him outside to give him some, uh, some exercise. And we have this kind of dog kennel pen, play pen sort of thing. Put Patches in. Well, Patches is very small and he can just fit right through <laughs> the kennel. So he gets out and our dog is a really sweet little mini golden doodle. And he, uh, he'll chase Patches around and it's, it's sweet. But the other day I was watching this, and as I was kind of just thinking about this and the helplessness of sheep, I was watching this bunny just kind of race around, and Bucky's, you know, or my dog, he's, he's, he's trying to whatever, and Bucky gets in front of him and just slams a paw right on top of the bunny. Now, yeah, I did the same thing. I was like, wow, you know, and I looked at him, and the bunny just totally just goes flat, just completely flat smushed into the ground, everything. And Bucky, I think Bucky was confused. He lifts his paw up and he kind of stares at him like this. And the bunny is just totally prostrate before the Lord, you know? And I looked at it and then the bunny just kind of like gets up and scurries away, you know? And I was like, man, this bunny lives as prey. Like this bunny, its job was to act dead. Like in that moment, even though I knew Bucky probably, I should check, but it wasn't going to do anything to this bunny. This little bunny just, that was its defense mechanism. And it was shocking for me to watch something live so completely helpless. Honestly, I think Bucky is like the nicest dog in the world, but that bunny was scared for his life. You know, and that, that prey level of just thinking about the sheep, like they do not, we'll talk about this more later, they do not have a way to defend themselves. There has to be something outside of them that fights for them, that protects them, that watches over them. Um, the Psalm 23, we looked at it in the first uh, week that it's a big, uh, it's written chiastically. It's a big chiasm. Um, and I put it up on a screen here. So David has been writing and building up to this point of verse 4. So Jeff, if you can put that up on the screen there. Um, so as you can see, verse 1 and 2 and 3 are building um, up into this kind of point here where David is really writing a lot of like, because of this good shepherd, I can look back and because of what he has done, that he is a shepherd I shall not want, that he does lead me to the pastures and the waters, that he, he will be with me. I When death, when evil, when something can happen, I can actually have no fear. It's actually possible because of who, who I know God to be. And then as we'll get into it um, next week, it kind of goes back down, and, and it's a beautiful, beautiful way. But David's been building to this point. Because of the Lord being my shepherd, because he leads me to satisfaction in him alone, but providing not only for my basic needs, but restoring his soul, 
the deep spiritual, the deepest need we have. Because of all of that, he can now write in verse 4, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. What a beautiful, beautiful line. Now, what comes to mind for you when you hear valley of the shadow of death? For me, it brings up times uh, when I've felt stuck in the dark place emotionally and mentally, right? Going through high anxiety, going through times of just dark depression. There's just not a lot of light. Feeling like this deep darkness is all around and still traveling through it and it feels like nothing is alive. Death is all around me. Death of dreams, death of joy, this just constant overbearing shadow of it. Well, if if you've ever had times like that, or are in times like that, a couple things stand out to me about this psalm here. First, that David includes this line. It'd be easy for David to just stick with the beauty of lying down in green pastures besides still waters, like that vacation house moment, or like the blissful 20 minutes in the morning before your kids wake up, but everything is a little too quiet. But he includes the reality of often mountaintop experiences by necessity create valleys. It's very real life, not fantasy language. Right? I also appreciate how David doesn't write, even though I find myself stuck in the valley, even though I find myself trapped by the valley. What does he write? Even though I walk through the valley. The valley that death is casting its shadow on is not something to dwell in. It's not a place to stay in. It's a natural place to be led to and moved through to get to the other side. David is doing something very interesting with the language here. Okay, what comes to mind for me was that emotional mental state, right? But this was actually a real thing for David. So in shepherding, especially in the Holy Land, the shepherd has to lead the flock to the place they need to be. And sometimes the best path to where they need to go is not in a wide, open, lush space, but through a large valley where heavy rain after heavy rain season has created these deep grooves called wadi, wadis. It's Arabic for valley or ravine. You can see that there in the picture, those deep grooves. And there's paths, as you can kind of see, that go through it. But in the desert wasteland, the ground is incredibly dry. So when in the heavy rains fall, the water doesn't soak in. It just starts flooding downwards and creating over years and years and years these deep ravines. So these valleys create these shadowed ravines that shepherds would have to guide their sheep to to get to the other side. The valleys are so deep that no one could see what was around the bend or over the top. There was complete trust of the shepherd to guide guide through the wadi. So when David writes, the valley of the shadow of death, now he's using language that he very much knows what leading sheep through these valleys or these wadis mean, but he's using such strong language where he knows it's not just a deep valley, it's a valley of shadow of death. He's putting the emotion and the danger into describing a particular valley state that he's in. There's also for him a belief to be an actual wadi called the Valley of the Shadow of Death. So you can see it right there. This is actually called the Wadi Kelt, the Wadi Kelt, which runs in the Judean Desert from Jerusalem to Jericho. Okay, and there's this path that followed all the way through it. 
Um, and, and it was believed to be where David actually fled on this pathway. He fled from his son Absalom when he was being attacked, being chased. There believes to be a cave there where Elijah, on some of his journeys, actually hid inside the cave and stayed out there. Believed to be a path that Jesus walked many times on the path from Jerusalem to Jericho or Jericho to Jerusalem. And it was also either the path, uh, commentators believe, or parallel to the path that Jesus used to describe the Good Samaritan story. So it's a well-known space. And just a cool fact, if you kind of see, there's actually a little structure kind of in the middle. In the 5th century, there was actually a monastery that was carved out of the side of the Wadi Kelp, named the St. George Monastery. Named after a teenager whose parents had both died, he came to the monastery to live as a monk in a quiet, contemplative life and to be hospitable to weary travelers. The rough history was destroyed by the Persians in the 600s. But after multiple times of rebuilding, it was actually um, restored in 1901 by the Greek Orthodox Church. And that where the blue uh, tops are there, that bell tower was just added in the 50s, which is pretty cool. So it's very much live and active. And you can see there's a stairway kind of on the left there all the way up. So you can go and travel and go down the steep stairs. And there's a bunch of like dangers, warnings, all this kind of stuff. Pretty cool. Pretty cool, right? But the point of sharing all of that is because for David, he's speaking of a state of being, but based off a very real experience he's had in a very real place. Right? David is not just writing poetic language that is all in theory. He's experienced the narrow paths feeling small next to such high ravines, prey to wild animals and treacherous ledges. Look at the ledges on that. One misstep. One misstep, him or his sheep, could lead to the falling to their death. And just as, the good, as any good shepherd would lead his sheep out of that situation, David knows his great God will lead him out of the shadowy valley that he is in. I love David's resolve so that even though a lot is stacked against him, what does he write? I will fear no evil. Just like the first line in this psalm, because the Lord is my shepherd, I will not want. He says now, because the Lord is my shepherd, I will not fear. Think for the moment of the power of actually committing to those two statements. What would look different in our world today if there was a commitment to not want and to not fear, but trust in God instead? All right, what would change in your life if that was a commitment to not want and to not fear? Not giving in to fear is a key commitment because often fear and darkness go hand in hand, right? You, you've never had to teach kids to be afraid of the dark. Right? I've never been in my kid's room and pointed out a shadow to my son and said, hey, guess what? That might be a monster right behind you. Right? In fact, I usually I have to convince them that that's not the case, unsuccessfully sometimes. What is it about shadows that also bring about evil vibes? Right? Is it too many horror movies out there, too many songs about darkness, too many bad experiences in the dark? I want to suggest a reason. I think I want to suggest a natural bent that we have from being created to desire the light, not the darkness. As we looked at last week, this psalm is, is in the Genesis section of the Psalms. Book one is correlating to Genesis language. And this language takes us right to page one of our Bibles, Genesis 1, 2, and 3. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. 
And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, and God said, Let there be light, and there was light. Darkness was not to be the permanent state of the world. God created light just like he created humans. His light in Genesis 1 was to separate day from night, but light in our Bibles has always been used as an image of something that exposes the darkness and that the darkness cannot overcome. John said this of God himself in 1 John 1.5, This is a message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. The Apostle Paul said this of us, Ephesians 5.8, For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. So walk as children of light. Desiring the light, I would argue, is a God-given desire because it is God himself. And here's the crazy part. As we just read, there's no darkness in God, but God goes into the darkness with us. David's next line, after I will fear no evil, is, for you are with me. Because there is no darkness in God, he can't be afraid of the darkness. It cannot consume him. It cannot tempt him. In fact, by his very nature of being full of light, the darkness is moved back and destroyed by him. David knows this to be true. With David, when he, he's like the sheep, deep in the ravine and can't see more than 20 feet in front of him, scared of the shadows and what lurks there, he says, my God is with me here. That's so encouraging, right? That's so encouraging, but this might not seem so strange to us. Of course God is with us. We have that theology locked in. We know that because of Jesus and the cross and the Holy Spirit is with us and so forth. But just think real quick of David writing this in a time where he is alive. This is ancient Israel. All sorts of tribes and people groups had their own little G gods that they prayed to, sacrificed to, worshipped. But every one of those little G gods believed to reside in their dedicated spaces, their temples. They couldn't be with you unless you had a totem or an idol or some sort of carved image with them but not the God of Israel. In fact, the God of Israel actually commanded the people not to do that, not to have carved images. Remember back in the wilderness in Moses' day, one of the commandments, Exodus 24, you shall not, 20, verse 4, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in water under the earth. God says, nothing represents me but me so I will be with you. Sure, they had the Ark of the Covenant, right? But this is not an idol of power, but a reminder of commitment, a reminder of a covenant, like, a, like carrying around a giant wedding ring. They carried and remembered God's faithfulness and that they were God's people. For David, the king of the Israelites, to announce that God is not only shepherding him, but is actively with him while he's shepherding. This is what he wants anyone who reads these words to know. This is what he wants anyone to remember. Again, this psalm is a song written to remind the Israelite people and, and subsequently us, right, that God was always with them because God isn't a temple religion. He's a personal God with a people whom he loves. David concludes this section with how this personal God takes care of his people. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. 
So if you'll let me nerd out just for a quick second, a little bit more about ancient shepherding. I know that's what you all came to, to hear about. So commentators and scholars are a bit in debate if David is using two different words for one item, um, or, or is it two different items here, rod and staff? Okay, so here's the options real quick so that we can feel scholarly, all right? First, rod and staff are two words or meanings for one item. Okay, this is called the shepherd's staff. It has this kind of crook on one end and then a heavy end for defense against wild animals. This was both one tool used for weapon and um, shepherding in their vocation. Okay, so that's a very legit option. The other option is that these are two different items. The shepherd would have a rod, which could also be translated mace or weapon, and their belt strap, which would have a, a kind of a blunt end, sometimes even with embedded iron bits in it for warding off threats. And they would also have a staff, a secondary stick, which is good for leaning on when walking with a crook end uh, for wrapping around sheep to pull them into safety if need be. If a sheep misstepped or was heading for danger, the shepherd could use the crook to gently grab the waist or back legs and bring them the way they should go. Which one's right? Yes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. Either way you look at it, it doesn't really matter. And uh, I believe them when they say they are in debate, so I'm not going to make a decision. Um, but here's the thing. Either way you look at it, Whatever tools the shepherd is given, here's what they're, they're used for two different purposes, for external threats and internal threats. The good shepherd not only defends the sheep from attacks out there, but also saves the sheep from destroying themselves, whether by walking off a cliff because of an enticing smell, getting lost, or just needing redirection. Think about it. We're back to this point. We're back to the bunny, right? Sheep have no offense or defense, right? Cats have claws and speed. Dogs have teeth and speed. Bears have strength and claws. Horses can kick, bite, or run. Sheep have nothing, right? Even if they could headbutt, it just presents themselves forward into the jaws of a lion. Now, this is where we're going to get personal. Think of yourself, as David is doing, as the sheep defenseless. Listen, if you're sitting there thinking, no, 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 no way. I could do it. I could take a punch and I can give a punch, right? I'm just going to ask us to change our thinking real quick. It's not defenseless like trying to put us down, right? God made us human, which is physical. He made us here on this earth. We are physical, tangible human beings. So if the battles were all physical, then we do have ways to fight back, okay? If our battle was just with finances, we could come up with a financial peace plan. If our fight is just parenting, then, uh, well, I don't know, we'd probably lose that one, but we could do all we could to try to control our family to produce the kids we want, right? If appearances are the goal, then we can always strive to look and to feel better. Just, just pick your supplement, right? If being liked by others is the ultimate goal, then we can find the group of people that reinforce what we want to be and what we want to think like. We can solve a lot of human issues if we wanted to, and the world will even encourage this. You can be strong enough. You can be independent enough. You have it in you to tackle whatever comes your way. And listen, I'm all about encouragement. I'm all about empowering the person to believe in themselves. I'm all for human flourishing. But as long as we get to the end of ourselves... The way of the world encourages salvation and leaves little to no room for a savior. The gospel of the world is self-preservation, not repentance. 
Jesus calls for repentance, not because he doesn't want us to thrive, but because he knows we are like sheep in need of a shepherd when it comes to the real battle. And here's why I can say that so confidently, because our fight is not with flesh and blood. It's a spiritual one, right? The fight is for our hearts, for our souls. The apostle Paul in Ephesians 6 writes this sobering line, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. What a sobering line. What a sobering line. And this is his conclusion. This is chapter Ephesians 6, verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might and put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand against the schemes of the devil. Only God knows what we need to defend against spiritual attacks. It's his armor, his rod, and his staff that comforts us. Not our physical prowess, not our ability to withstand temptation or to think clearly in hard situations. Like David is bringing this psalm to the pinnacle of conclusions, using the valley of the shadow of death language that even when lost, when scared, when lonely, when the future is unclear, when evil lurks and the shadows are thick, when we are spiritually under attack with temptation, with doubt, with worry and anxiety, with no way to defend ourselves, David says, your God is with you. How does he know this? Because he can look back and see what God has done for him. He's made me lie down in green pastures. He's led me to still waters. He's restored my soul. Even when he can't see it currently, he can know it to be true. And church, that's a question for us this morning. Do we know it to be true? When we look back on our life, no matter where we're at in the seasons of life, is it hard to see where God was moving? Or sometimes it's really clear. Right? Where has he been leading in your life, preparing you for, leading you through? Maybe right now is that deep valley of the shadow of death. Right? And sometimes, again, this is an external valley. Whether we feel like we've been put there because of external sources, a rough home life, abuse, a haunted past, a hard job, a really hard marriage, difficult kids, homelessness, joblessness, whatever the case, you find yourself in a tough spot. It feels hopeless. It feels dark and scary to know what's next. And the darkness wants you to feel like you're all alone. But I would ask that you hear the psalm as a beacon of hope. You may be in the valley, but the Lord is with you right now. This psalm teaches us that God isn't waiting for you to figure it out and get out to the other side so he can finally start being with you. He is with you in the messiness. He came down into your darkness to be with you. Remember, David calls it the shadow of death, the shadow that lurks because death wants, you to, wants to make you think that it is imminent that it is omnipresent, that death is the only path, that it is in charge, but it's just a shadow of the real thing. And here's the reality, guys. Jesus took on the real thing. Jesus already met death head on at the cross. Not a shadow, 
Not a hint, not a smokescreen. He met death head on and defeated it. He rose to new life, breaking the power death has. So when the shadow is used to intimidate God's people, there is comfort that Jesus has won. The good shepherd has brought a light into the darkness that can never be overcome. There's also reality of an internal dark valley, right? There's a reality that we've put ourselves in the valley. It's less about external sources and more about us being prone to wander and to trust ourselves instead of God. It's easier to feed the flesh, to go after our appetites, to do what we see fit in our own eyes. And especially when thinking about one of those deep valleys, we have no idea where we're headed, right? Surely following our own way only can lead to death or at most, or at, at most a complete waste of time. Not only is the good shepherd with us in our selfishness and darkness that we create, but his staff guides us back. He gently brings us back out of our own darkness, back to the light, and sets our feet on the path. We can resist for sure, but he will be consistent in trying to rescue us. And not only is he with us in our darkness and bringing us out to his light, he's also preparing something for us that is unlike anything we could ever do for ourselves. This is why David, and then next week we're going to conclude, is going to transition from God as the shepherd, an analogy, to God as the host, analogy, in the last section. He is with us on that journey, and he is the end goal of what's on the other side through the valley. But to end today, I want us to experience something together. Right before Psalm 23 is, unsurprisingly, Psalm 22. If you look in your Bibles, it's actually titled the Doe of the Dawn. It's using two metaphors. Doe is for something being in a new state, vulnerable, most likely being hunted. Dawn being a new time where the light is beginning to creep into the darkness that is all that's been known and has been consuming. I have no idea if David wrote these psalms actually back to back, but as it's in our scriptures and in our compilation of the Bibles, I want to end today with reading them back to back. Psalm 22 has a lot of angst in it. David cries out in frustration, a feeling like the valley is dark and deep, feeling alone, feeling scared and helpless, and at the same time calling upon the faithfulness of his covenant God to be there with him as he's been for his forefathers. So I'm going to read this over. So it'll be on the screen, but I would encourage you, if you resonate with anything or feel in that darkness, that just close your eyes. Feel the range of emotions David goes through in these back-to-back psalms, and then we'll move into a time of response. (coughs) Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted, they trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued, in you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man." Scorned by mankind, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. 
They make mouths at me and they wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It has melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a postard. My tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword and my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the afflicted of the affl affliction of the afflicted. He has not hidden his face from him, but he has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you, for kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever.